So this morning, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation was a letter that was sent out to all the churches filled with many apocalyptic and confusing visions and symbols about how King Jesus is going to bring ultimate and final victory over evil in this world. Now, most every week I have mentioned and will continue to mention through the last five or six weeks of this book that the purpose of the revelation of revelation is not to promote speculation about the end times and the coming of Christ. As someone once said, the purpose of revelation is not to point you to charts, but to point you to Christ. That is what is critical. This book was written to suffering Christians in the first century to give them unshakable hope, to encourage unwavering holiness, to refute false teaching that had made its way into the church, and to refocus the church on the spread of the gospel. If you want to be prepared for the end times, these are the important principles that you need to be focused on. These are the things that you need to be passionately in prayer about asking the Lord to work on in your lives. The rest will take care of itself. All right. As we have gone through these different chapters and we've reviewed these things, in fact, I want to take us back just a little bit today. Uh, If you missed some weeks or just because Revelation is such a jam-packed book, it's good to be reminded of where we went In Revelation chapter 1, we saw Jesus Christ revealed in his fullness, not just as a a baby born in a manger, uh, not just as someone who died for our sins and rose again, but as a coming king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We moved into Revelation 2 and 3, and we saw the letters to the seven churches where they were encouraged and also convicted. Then we got into the throne room. We saw the the ultimate worship of God in the throne room. And four, we saw the revelation of Jesus as the one who is worthy to bring about the end of the world as we know it, to bring about justice and righteousness once and for all. Revelation 6, we got into the seven seals, the first seven judgments. Chapter 8, we see this final judgment, it feels like, poured out on the earth. Then right after that, we see the seven judgments, and it's like the, uh, the seven trumpets, rather, and it's like the judgments start all over again, seemingly from the beginning. And then it leads us to the end of chapter 11, where we see the seventh trumpet, another, what it seems like a final judgment poured out. And then right after that, into 12 and 14, we go back in time. We see the uprising of Satan, his, his, his uh, desire and bloodthirsty goal to end Christ. We see Christ's death and resurrection bringing victory. We saw all kinds of images, dragons and beasts and lambs, oh my. And that leads us to today, where in a sense, the judgments, now that we've gone through 14, are kind of starting all over again with a brand new vision called the seven bowls. Seven bowls of God's wrath. And this cycle continues to repeat itself. And some see these different sets of judgments as not something that happens chronologically, like 21 judgments right in a row. But they see them happening in these cycles where you're getting different pictures of similar judgments, just different viewpoints. 
and they intensify as they go. You remember in the seals, there was a fourth of the earth that was destroyed. And then there was in the, the trumpets, there was a third of the earth that was impacted and messed up. And now with the bulls, you'll see all of the earth affected. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through briefly, and we're going to go through them quickly because uh, there's some really important things I want to talk about at the end. We're going to go through Revelation 15 and 16 today, which you can find at the, uh, the end of the Bible, all the way to the right. We'll have them on the screen, though. And we're going to pull and see what we can see and see some of the comparisons and pull out some of the meanings uh, for God's glory. Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Then... I saw a sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Verse 3 and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 32, there's recorded what is the song of Moses. And it's a song of triumph for Israel after they came across the sea safely from being in slavery in Egypt, having defeated Pharaoh. And they're celebrating how God provided for them, how God eventually loosened the hold that Pharaoh had on the Israelites. And you see the comparison here, the similarities here, as they celebrate how God is loosening the hold that Satan has on this world once and forever. I'm not going to do an in-depth study in this, but if you've ever studied Revelation, it's really interesting how much of it calls back to Exodus, how many similarities there are between the judgments that we read about in Exodus and the ones that we see here in Revelation. Very interesting study, very fascinating. If you ever have time to sit down and look at it, there is a lot, of, there's differences, but there's a lot of similarities. Moving on to verse five, it says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness, which is another name for the tabernacle in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. Verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, all throughout the Bible, God's wrath is pictured as a bowl or as a cup to be poured out on its enemies. 
And that's what we see here in the seven bulls that we're going to cover. And, and like I said last week, there's different interpretations about how all these things are going to happen. Now, some have said that these judgments have, they've already taken place and they, they happen symbolically in the first century. Not really what I hold to, but some do. Others say that these things are happening in all of history, that before the first and second coming of Christ, that you see all of these judgments begin to unfold. And then others, which is the, probably the most popular view in the evangelical church, is that all of these things are going to happen in the future, all of them. Me, I lean more towards that these things are unfolding between the first and second coming of Christ. They have unfold, some have unfolded before our time, some are unfolding now, and some will unfold in the future. And they will clearly intensify in greater ways in the future. As I've studied this more and more, this is the view that I take and I hold to. And it's okay, like I'm going to remind you every week, it's okay to have different views of Revelation because I'll tell you right now, anybody who walks up to me and says, oh, I have under Revelation down, I understand it. That's not someone who I'm going to put a lot of faith in when studying the Bible. The people who come to me, and I remember my, uh, the, the professors that I would have uh, when I was in seminary, and they'd be like, they'd come to Revelation, they'd be like, you know what, I'm going to teach you a bunch of stuff, but in the end, I don't know. The Bible is written in different types of literature, and different literatures have different purposes. And some types of literature, like poetic uh, or uh, like apocalyptic, like Daniel and Revelation, they use lots of symbols to convey meaning. If God wanted every detail spelled out that we would all understand it, he would say, in such and such a date, this will happen. In such and such a date, this will happen, but he doesn't. Because that's what's not most important. The meaning is what we need to grasp because the truth is for some of us, we will live to see the end times. No, we may. Some of us may see the live times. Some of, none of us might. Some of you, you, you may have two weeks or a month left of your life. You, never, you may be in your end times. And so the purpose is living that way now because we never know the time that we are given. Amen, church? So I'm going to walk through these, like I said, briefly, and then I really want to get to the heart of what I want to say today. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath of God. So the first angel went and he poured out his bowl on the earth. And, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who, more, who bore the bark of the beast and worship its image. Remember, which we said is either could be a physical mark or it could be just a symbolic, uh, a symbolism for people who have chosen to follow the beast, the antichrist, the, the ways of this world, and they have turned away from God. I didn't get that. Could you try again? No, I can't. <laughs> be quiet. Why do you ever do that? I have you silenced. Man, me and Sarah are going to have a talk. You know what, we're just going to shut this off just to be, uh, you know, I just feel like that's going to happen again. There we go. All right. Now, we're not sure what these sores are. Are they supernatural? Maybe. Are they a result of some kind of plague? Maybe. Are they a result of something that they're doing to themselves? I don't know. Like I saw the other night, there's this new type of drug users are using, and it'll actually leave sores on you as you use it. 
open wounds. Like, who knows? Whatever it is, it will not be pleasant. The second bowl in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, it could be that the water is actually turned to blood, or it could be um, symbolism that because everything in the water died, it was like blood. It was like death. And, and I'm not completely sure if there's a reference to the, the, the sea of the entire world. Can you imagine that smell? Or if this is focused on the Mediterranean Sea, which is considered the great sea in the Bible. Don't know. Once again, won't be pleasant. Third bowl, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So in this bowl, God pours out his wrath into the rivers. Sinners who have shed the blood of saints causing their suffering, are giving blood in their water as a punishment. In fact, if you read uh, non, some non-biblical Jewish literature, uh, the, the early Jews believed that was one of the reasons that God chose in one of the plagues to Egypt to turn the water into blood was, was to symbolize uh, what the Egyptians had done into the Israelites and murdering so many of them. Verse 8 the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So the fourth pour, bowl is poured on the sky. It scorches people with fire. Again, is this literal? I don't know. Because the image here is more than just getting a nasty sunburn. Scorched by fierce heat. Now, in the old, the, the interesting thing is in the Old Testament, uh, when you read some of the prophets, they'll use like the sun uh, as symbolism for God's judgment, whether it's taking away light or or the the sun will come down and scorch you, uh, and and it's like indirect judgment. For example, there's one, it's Ezekiel, it might be Jeremiah, I don't remember, uh, where, or it's Chronicles, one of three, where it talks about how the heat of the sun will punish the Israelites. And what it's talking about is it's killing all their crops and destroying them, their way to eat. So we don't under, fully understand this, but once again, won't be pleasant. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. They plunged into darkness. It could be physical darkness. It could be spiritual darkness. You see darkness also in the Bible used for spiritual darkness. And I was reading this. I'm like, which would, be, which would cause me such anguish that I, it, it would give the, the picture of gnawing on my tongue? Would it be physical darkness or would it be spiritual darkness? And I was like, man, I got to tell you, I think spiritual darkness in the end, the eating away of your soul would cause greater anguish. In the end, we don't know, but it won't be pleasant. 
Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, which would be an illustrate, which is a symbol for Satan, and coming out of the mouth of the beast, which would be a symbol for the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, these unclean spirits like frogs. Verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, the sixth bowl is not really a picture of judgment as it's like preparation for the seventh and final bowl, right? And so there's these deceptive and demonic spirits that I'm gonna guess are gonna work through people. It's my guess. And they're gonna go out and they're gonna preach in such ways and perform miracles that they're gonna win people over to pull them together for a great battle, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, or maybe, and again, a couple weeks. And John identifies them frog-like. Okay, this doesn't mean they're gonna be like frogs, you know, when it's not like attack of the Kermits or something like that. Uh, but it's, once again, it's a symbol, and you, and you, and you take it back uh, to Egypt. You know, what was one of the plagues? The frogs. They were not well-liked creatures back then. They were not cute like we think they are today. They were loud and obnoxious and caused damage. Then in verse 15, he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon, which we'll talk about next week. I love this reminder in the middle of all of this judgment that Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. That means you won't see me coming. You won't hear me coming. You won't know until I am there. You can't chart it out. You can't, all of these people that go out and they give you the charts and the dates and the timelines or they'll say right at the end of the seven years, they pop all of this out, seven years, so they map this out. He says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. You won't know when. There's no way to predict it. So what does he say? How do we respond? He says, stay awake. Don't get caught naked. Now the imagery here is like a soldier who falls asleep on duty. Rather than having their war garments on who are ready for battle, ready for combat. He says, don't be unprepared for his coming. Be aware of it. Be on the lookout for it. Live like it's going to happen soon. 1 John 2 says, now little children abide in him. Jesus, he's speaking of, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in the shame at his coming. That means that we live for Christ in such a way that when he comes again or that when we we die, we know that we're gonna stand before him. We haven't been perfect, no one is, but we know that we have been living with him as the Lord of our life. 
We haven't been coming to church on Sunday once every three weeks or a month or five weeks every week, whenever we can get the, the, the gumption or have nothing better to do or we didn't stay up too late on a Saturday night. And that's it. Or pray only when we have something bad going on and then stop praying when it gets better. It's that every day of our lives, how can I live for God today? How can I know him better? How can I read his word to understand his, his direction for me? How can I, I lift up to him in prayer and quiet time and throughout the day? How can my entire life be focused on the gospel? To be awake. Remember we talked about last week that it is a true statement that we live in a world where there's an unseen battle going on, that everything in our lives, our struggles and our weaknesses and our, and our fears and all the nastiness we see out there, everything is supernatural. There is a battle going out there where Satan and his forces are working for the souls of humanity. It is only when we realize that we are at war in this world that we'll walk around prepared. We will have our weapon on us in God's word, walking around cautiously in prayer and in faith to serve him, to, to see when there's someone we can snatch from the fire as we read in Jude chapter one. He says, don't be exposed in your shame. Just like the letter to the church of Laodicea, who he called a naked, why? Because they were all into idolatry. Because when I return, you will not be able to ignore your shame. You will not be able to hide your sin anymore. Don't be caught naked. All of this leads to the seventh bowl where the cosmic judgment is fully poured out across the earth. Verse 17, it says, The angel poured out of his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake in such that it had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20, and every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from the heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because it was so severe. Now, before we get to what I really want to hit on today, I want you to notice something because we all grew up learning like that there's 21 judgments of God, right? Like, I don't know how there's anything left after the first 14 if you read it through, Apparently, there's, you know, that's what we learn. But as you study it, I think there's other theories where they're not, like I said at the very beginning, they're not necessarily 21 separate, but they're different pictures of similar judgments. Something for you to study if you get into this kind of thing. And let me, let me read this for you just to give you a little something to chew on. Here's the seventh seal in Revelation 8. Then the angel took the censer, which is like a bowl. And he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here's the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and then heavy hail. So same, but a little different. 
Then the seventh bowl, hear this again in verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake, and it goes on a couple verses later to talk about this heavy hail. So you see similarities in these. They could be different pictures of similar type judgments. Could they all be individual ones? Yes, they could. But uh, what I want to open up your mind is that the way that you may have been taught to Revelation could be right, but it may not be. And one of the best ways to study anything in Scripture is to always study it for yourself, to grab commentaries, uh, to grab lexicons, to sit down there with God's Word and the Holy Spirit and see what you can find. But know that at the end, that if you do that, the meaning is what matters most. And the meaning that we see here in the seven bowls is that God will one day pour out his wrath fully on this earth. Every man, woman, who has not put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will drink from the cup of fury of God. And I think this leads us to a critical question this morning. Over and over again, you see the wrath of God. You see people hiding themselves in caves in Revelation, asking mountains and rocks to fall on them because it's so bad. People tormented, people punished. And yet in the middle of all of this, you also see songs of worship. Chapter 15, it opens up with saints singing, great and amazing are your deeds. Your, your, your righteous acts have been revealed. Just like, like while all hell's breaking loose. There's worship in heaven. Verse 16, it says, just are you. You are the holy one. You're giving them what they deserve. This is a challenging concept I think, for the American church or the Western church who does not actually study the Bible themselves. Worshiping a God of wrath. We love to think about God's love and mercy and kindness uh, and, and compassion. And he is full of all of these things, but he is also a God that is full of wrath. I mean, what is the last time we sang a song on Sunday morning that was praising God for his wrath, right? Blessed be the wrath of the Lord, right? We don't, right? I'll ask the girls. Maybe they can work on something. I mean, because in part, that's what these, these believers, these angelic beings are doing. They are worshiping God partly for his wrath. How do we do that? I mean, think about it in an eternal perspective. And we're going to talk about hell and destruction in about a month, a lot more. But, I mean, think about it. We're both going to be in heaven. We're going to be worshiping God while multitudes and multitudes of people are not there. If someone were to ask you, how do you worship a God that is a God of wrath, how would you answer them? If they would point out all the wrath of God in the Bible, how do you worship a God like that? How do you respond? It's one of the biggest objections to God in the Bible. Only shortly behind, why does God allow pain and suffering? So what I want to do with our remaining time briefly is I want to talk about how we worship a God of wrath. Because if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you're not worshiping the same God I am. You have to worship God in his totality 
or you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You do not get to pick and choose the parts of him you like and leave the rest outside. I think to be able to do this, to be able to worship a God of wrath, you have to start with a high view of God. You have to understand that God is sovereign. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It doesn't belong to you or me. It belongs to him. And he's in control of all of it from beginning to end, the sun, the moon, the stars, the past, the present, the future, over every animal, every man and woman, over all suffering, all good things, he is sovereign. And he is also holy. He is radically set apart from all of creation. Scripture tells us that he is without equal, that he is without error, that he is untouched by sin, that he does not tolerate sin. Revelation 15.4 says, for you alone are holy. And that he's righteous in all of his ways. And, and that's really the primary phrase that you see in 15 and 16. In verse uh, Revelation 15.4, it says, all nations will come and worship you. Why? For your righteous acts have been revealed. And then in Revelation 16, 6, he says, once again, they say, you've given everybody what they deserve. Their wrath, their judgment. God's wrath is a demonstration of his righteous judgment. And then it says that on that day, when the judgment is complete, it'll be completely clear that God is just, that he is fair, that he is absolutely right, that he always makes the right call. And I think that even in our sinfulness, deep down inside, every one of us, no matter whether you believe in God, we long for a righteous judgment of God. Every, I've never met anyone who hasn't had a sense inside of them and a longing to see the evil in this world taken care of, to think, man, surely this cannot be it. I mean, we see, we see, we see mass murders. We, we see the, the, the Holocaust history. Surely we think there must be judgment for this. We get offended by evil. We get angered by injustice. I see people out there who don't believe anything in God and they rage, rage against injustice. Tim Keller, he has a great quote on the resurrection of Jesus that encompasses what I'm saying here. He says, he says I always say to my skeptical and secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should really want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it simply will burn up one day when the sun explodes or what have you. They find it so discouraging that so few people care about justice without ever realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make this world a better place. I mean, why does it matter if we sacrifice for others if in the end nothing really makes a difference? However, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour out ourselves for the needs of others, the needs of this world.
Don't we all have a built-in innate longing for justice in this world? A desire for shootings and for war and for crime and for evil not to be the last word. We long for good to come. That's the picture of Revelation. Where the sovereign, holy, and righteous God, he makes things right. And so some people will go, yeah, I agree with all this, but if this was the case, where is God now? Why is he loving? Why does he allow this to happen? Uh, and I always say, because God's playing the long game. We care about earth because it's all we know. But God, who is infinite in time and existence, it's like a snap of the fingers. And his love is giving us warning after warning after warning. Have you ever read the Old Testament? How many prophets does God send to them warning them? This is what's going to happen if you don't follow me, if you fall into idolatry. Warning after warning. It's not like he doesn't put up any signposts, right? He warns them. Throughout the, all the Old New Testament, he warns us through revelation. He warns you, here is what's going to happen. And then when we don't pay attention to it and judgment comes, we're like, God, this is wrong of you. Nowhere would we play this out different, where we play this out the same way in our lives. Nowhere would we come to somebody that we have authority over and we would warn them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, them still do what they should not do. And then when they're like, well, how could you do this to me? We're like, you're right. I should have warned you another 150 times. The Lord is merciful and gracious and he is slow to anger. So he gives us, he is patient, as we read in 2 Peter 3, not wanting anyone to perish. That's where his love is. Our problem is we don't have a high enough view of God. Our problem is that the view of man that we have is too high. We view ourselves too high. We have walked away from God we have served ourselves. We have elevated ourselves in his place, doing what we want. We have made ourselves higher than God. And, and, and when we'll, and we even do this in different cases. We'll, we'll watch the news and we'll see murderers and rapists and robbers and thieves. And we're like, yes, justice for them. But then when we are convicted of our own sin and our own lives, we're like, who are you to judge? We'll misquote Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge. We must lower the view of ourselves and raise the view of God. We must lower the view of ourselves and raise the view of God. When you are able to look in the mirror and to understand your sinfulness and how you have sinned against a holy God and you realize what he has done through his son in dying and rise, raising again that you may be saved, when you realize you have been spared of that wrath, it's what causes you to worship. Far too many of us severely underestimate the seriousness of our sin against God. 
the measure of sin is always magnified by the one we sin against. If I were to go kick a, a log in my backyard, nothing would happen. If I were to go hit another man, it might break relationship between us. If I were to go up to punch the police officers, I'd land in jail. If I'd walk up to the president and I'd take a swing at him, I might get myself shot. The point being is that our sin is magnified by who we're sinning against. We don't have a high enough view of God to understand that we are sinning against the infinite, holy, and righteous creator of the heavens and the earth. But when we do, that's what causes us to worship a God of wrath. And so my prayer for you is that you would have a higher view of God. And I believe we all need a higher view of God of our lives. And that where you need it, you would have a more humble view of who you are. That would cause you to repent of your sins. That you would thank God for his salvation through his son. And you would actually thank him for his wrath. You ever thought about that? That God's love without wrath would be not love at all. I've said this before. If you love your life, if you are married and you love your spouse, you hate everything that would threaten your spouse. If I, if I love my kids, I hate everything that would threaten my kids, right? I have a friend of mine who's Jewish. His great-grandparents or something were through the Holocaust or something, one of them. You know, and, and if, you, if you love people who are Jewish, you will hate the Holocaust, right? There's this complementary balance of our feelings that anything that you love, you are going to hate anything that will destroy that. God's justice without wrath would be ineffective. To allow the things that would destroy his creation for all of eternity without judging them and destroying them, that is not a God of love. And that's the beauty of God. He will bring wrath to destroy all that would threaten what he loves. But in his mercy and his grace, he offers a way for us to be saved from his wrath. And when you hold these things in balance in your life, and you see who he is and what he is doing and has done and will do, and then you look at yourself and what you have done, which you do not deserve, and yet what you've been given. That is how you worship a God who is full of wrath out of his love. And I pray, if nothing else, that these verses and these judgments will remind you of what you deserved without Christ. And they will either cause you to repent and turn to him for the first time, putting your faith in him as Lord and Savior. It will cause you to wake up for those of you that are, are living your lives asleep in your sin, unrepentant, supposedly followers of Jesus, but not following him, and you will repent and wake up. And it will refocus us as the church to bring God's message of love and wrath to a world that is going to experience these things if they do not put their faith in him.